Welcome to the Coached Success Podcast. This podcast is aimed at connecting you with the ways top performers think about challenges so that you can adapt your thinking accordingly and live your version of ultra extraordinary. On today's episode, I speak to Paul Sinclair about what truly drives human behavior. Paul, a former athlete, entrepreneur and member of an elite military unit faced his own struggles dealing with addiction. Drawing from his diverse past and the challenges that he had to overcome, Paul now helps high achieving professionals reconnect with themselves. During this episode, we speak about Paul's struggles and journey, as well as the key factors that high achieving clients commonly struggle with. We speak about mindset, coping mechanisms and trauma. Stay tuned, this is an episode not to be missed. So, Paul, thank you for joining me on the call today. How are you doing? Um, yeah, I'm present. I'm in touch with myself. I'm uh, experienced a lot of happiness this morning, joy. I've done my meditation. So, uh, yeah, I'm uh, ready to rock and roll. That's awesome. I'm glad that to hear that you are happy and just being mindful. Um, what is the time out there in Malta at the moment? It is 10 minutes past nine. Okay, in 10 the past nine. Okay, quite early. <laughs> yeah. okay. Well, I'm up at five every day, so um, uh, now it's getting on for me now. It's almost time for my nap. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, Paul, would you like to tell us who is Paul Sinclair? Um, so there's two ways you can look at that, who and what. Who I am. Okay. Who I am is um, I'm very sensitive. Mm-hmm. I'm very um, gregarious. I'm um, empathetic. I'm loving, caring, and nurturing. That's who I am as a core person. Mm-hmm. What I am is a whole different story. Um, okay. And and you shouldn't really confuse the two. So um, mm-hmm. I'll just give you a brief outline. Um, so as a kid, I was at Chelsea Football Academy. And okay. I was all set up to be a professional footballer. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a contract on the horizon. And um, leading up to that, um, I experienced a very painful and bad injury to my right knee, which mm-hmm. basically um, put an end to my dreams of being a footballer. Mm-hmm. Then I, had to, I was just coming up to the age of 16. So then I had to um, think about what I was going to do with my life. Um, my family weren't looking forward to the idea of supporting me through college and university because of my okay. behavior previous to that. So the only option to further my academic career or professional career was mm-hmm. to join the British Royal, for, uh, Royal Navy. Um, okay. I trained as a nuclear propulsion engineer and spent 10 years aboard nuclear submarines. Mm-hmm. Um, I was involved in the Falklands War and other and the Cold War. Um, yeah, so that was quite hectic. Um, upon leaving the Royal Navy, I used my engineering skills. Uh, I got involved in um, rock and roll, rock and roll lighting. So, okay, um, I was a lighting director for some of the biggest bands on the planet. Um, mm-hmm. People like Eric Clapton, um, Suzanne Vega, UB40, Prodigy. 
the orb, yeah, just to name a few. Um, when I was exposed to that environment, because the work is so tough, if you can imagine waking up in the morning, um, getting to the, to the warehouse, loading all the gear onto a truck, driving to wherever mm -hmm. it is, setting it up, doing the light and the sound check, then doing the performance, then ripping it all down, sticking it all back on the truck and going to another venue. Um, it's very demanding work. And also you have the, the band to, to deal with their perfectionism. Everything has to be perfect for their promotions, yes. right? So um, there's a lot of drugs that fly around in those environments, as everyone can appreciate. Um, cocaine, heroin, um, amphetamine, so you can just keep going. So what happened for me in that environment was that I was taking so much coke to actually be able to maintain my job and my focus. Okay. Um, that the come downs were horrendous until one dude suggested that it'd be a great idea to try heroin as a way of, of bringing yourself off of this um, high that takes so long to come off of. So I tried that and um, I took to it like a duck to water. So I became a full tilt um, intravenous user in the space of about a week. Okay. Uh, I'll come back to that later, but um, that's the gist of it. So then after that, um, um, I became a full till addict for 25 years until um, I ended up in South Africa. Unwillingly, I might add. Um, okay. <laughs> my parents and my daughter, um, uh, my sister, um, came together and, and lied to me. Um, it's a little bit more difficult on the other foot, right? Um, they lied to me. They said that I was going to this um, retreat, which is actually code for rehab. Um, I, was gonna go, I could go swimming. It was right by the beach. I could go hiking. I could go horse riding. Um, it was a very laid back uh, pastoral existence. In actual fact, it couldn't be further from the truth. It was a full tilt um, um, uh, boot camp. So, um, yeah, I did two years in, in rehab and um, um, the first 12 months I was ex highly resistant. I was given a 1% chance of recovery. So I actually thought someone said, well, what's the point? You know, I've got a one chance um, hope of living a, a inverted commas, normal life. So the, they saw something in me there. Um, because of my experience and that I could really relate on a, an emotional and psychological level to the other addicts around there. So I started training as a counselor. Upon leaving rehab, well, whilst I was in rehab, they, they said to me, look, Paul, you, you can't go back to London. You can't go back to your old haunts, hang out with the same people. You're going to have to mm -hmm. dramatically change your life. So um, I said, okay, so what do you love doing more than anything? I said, well, I love diving. And this is important. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but how important it was. So they gave me day release from the, from the rehab to, to go diving. And the, the waters around South Africa are a diver's paradise. Mm -hmm. so I really got back into connection with my environment and, and the things around me, the beauty in life. Um, so first of all, sounds like you have lots of experience in different fields. Okay, from being um, a footballer, to being in the war, to working in, in entertainment, <laughs> to um, 
going into substance abuse counseling and diving. And now you're working with um, companies and people, individuals to help them um, basically rediscover themselves. Is it rediscovering themselves? What exactly does your company do? Mind matters. Okay, so um, as an addiction, mm -hmm. it's the same working with corporate clients. I work mainly with corporate clients, professional mm -hmm. services, and I work mainly with scientists. Okay. Um, at some of the premier research institutions in Europe, like Max Planck, um, CERN, um, and other institutions. And what is, what is it about working with these people? They're lost, right? So mm -hmm. in addiction, we're going to call it when um, you no longer take drugs. You're in recovery, right? And what yes. does recovery mean? It means to find something that's lost. And it's the yes. same. It's, it's, it's the disconnection from the self that is the source of all of our, well, not just the self, but the, our core essence is the source of all our problems. Okay. So that's so, what mind matters. What we do is on a working scientist, a consultant, it needs to be on an intellectual level. They need to be very, they're very fact-based people. They, if I say to them, okay, I want you to do this, they'll say to me, why? Show me the evidence. Mm -hmm. Then I have to be able to back up my tools and techniques with scientific data. And that's where the neuroscience aspect of it comes in. The thing is, is that our, 12, our, our programs are 12 weeks for a very specific reason. It takes 12 weeks to formulate a new habit. It takes 12 okay. weeks for new neurons, which are built, born in the brain, i.e. neurogenesis, to be integrated mm -hmm. into a new pattern. Mm -hmm. Okay, so okay. Um, um, that's the reason why. So, so um, um, we can, before we start working with a corporate or a scientific client, we can actually take a MRI of their brain. And then after the 12 weeks, we can actually show them the differences between where they were and where they are now. Developmental, um, uh, progress in the prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex, um, a lessening of um, activity in the amygdala, which is the fight, flight, or freeze response. Okay. So that's how it works. Okay. So basically, clients come to you, um, just to confirm, clients come to you when they are feeling lost in a sense, academics? Definitely. These, the mm -hmm. thing, well, you have to, well, I said it sort of alluded to it before academics, mm -hmm. consultants mm -hmm. are all in their heads. Everything's okay. about that on an intellectual level. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that mindset has got them to where they are now, but a huge mm -hmm. expense to their emotional um, part of their, 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 their body mm -hmm. and their, this total disconnection from their gut knowing. There's three levels of knowledge in the human body. You have your intellect, you have your yes. heart, your feelings, and then you have your gut mm -hmm. knowing your instinct, okay. your intuition. So the intellect, okay. I help the intellectual guys reconnect with their emotional component and their intuitive knowing. Okay. Awesome. It sounds like really that incredible work that you're doing. <laughs> Definitely does make sense. So what you mentioned there also is, um, I just want to, to go back to what you mentioned earlier about, you know, the fact that intellectuals, it served them to focus on into on basically the profession, on science, on things that, that research, things that, dro that drove them and got them to this point, that mm -hmm. served them. But like you said, at a certain point, that's only one element of 
bean fulfill, okay, mm-hmm. fulfilling the bean. And um, that's how they're discovering right now that maybe they need to tap into where it is, like you say, the heart or the knowing aspects of them. So what it is, <clears throat> is that this intellectualization of everything comes at a huge cost because it means that they have to suppress their emotions. They have to suppress mm-hmm. their gut intuition, right? And these manifest, if you shut down your emotions, they will manifest somewhere. They will manifest in psychological disorders, depression, burnout, anxiety, um, heightened hypervigilance, stress, um, and even illness. There's scientific data Mm -hmm. now to prove that there is a connection between extremely stressed individuals and cancer. It's a fact. So, sorry. So, what is one of the top tools that you recommend? Um, to help science like these academics actually or intellectuals be more in tune with with the, the body and, um, the, and the environment mm-hmm. um, Good question. So the first thing that I ever do when I'm working with my clients is first I have to create a, 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 a Place a safe space for them to be vulnerable mm-hmm. growth, growth can only occur through vulnerability right? Think yes. of a tree, right? You don't plant a tree in concrete or rock hard ground. The, gro- the soil needs to be soft and mm-hmm. vulnerable in order for it to grow. And it's exactly the same with us. Okay. okay. So I create a safe space. And then the next thing I do, we find out what's driving them. What is the core belief that has driven you to totally disconnect from your emotions mm-hmm. and your gut knowing and try to understand why it was installed and when and for what purpose. Because this intellectualization of everything is a coping mechanism. It's a coping mechanism so that you don't have to experience your emotions. You explain everything away. You rationalize everything away. Mm -hmm. If if Mm -hmm. you see where I'm going with that. So that's the first thing is is actually to get people to a place where they can identify their core beliefs. And I say something about core beliefs. It's called core belief for a reason. It's a belief. Mm-hmm. It's not a core yes. fact. Our true essence is one of love and compassion and empathy. And all these other things that end up covering our core beliefs, uh, covering our essence, are coping yes. mechanisms. And those coping mechanisms are designed to protect us from pain. Yes. And um, how... How would you say, or what would you say is one of the most common beliefs that scientists come to you with, that, that they struggle with, that actually manifest, like you say, as stress? It's crazy. Um, mm-hmm. I'm stupid is a big one, and mm-hmm. I'm not good enough. And these, and these are the driving forces because they are constantly mm-hmm. trying to overcome this core belief. This yes. belief that, they, <laughs> that they're stupid and they're not good enough, so they excel, they excel, they excel, but at an mm-hmm. emotional price. That is obviously imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. and but it serves them at their level, okay? Like you said, um, it serves them to continuously get better and better at their mm-hmm. craft, okay? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think everybody suffers from a lack of belief because whether I work with clients, like you say, at a high level, intellectual level, or whether it's professionals, professional athletes, or whether just somebody who's never did anything spectacular with their life at all meaningful, mm-hmm. um, they all struggle with this sense of belief, whether they are capable of doing something that they, they know they want. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, I believe all human beings 
um, have aspirations, okay? They aspire to something greater. And it could be just love, like you say, it could be more money, it could be um, advancing the career, or it could just be, it, could, it can be anything, a variety of things. But ultimately, many people don't ever live into the aspirations because they are afraid of whether they will be capable of manifesting it. Mm-hmm. So it just becomes a daydream or a wish instead. One of the very interesting dynamics is that, especially working with these high-level scientists, mm-hmm. I say to them, one of the questions is, is, well, when will you be satisfied with what you've achieved? And the answer inevitably is, well, I'll never be satisfied. When I'm working with a consultant, what is important to you? Now you have it all. You have, you know, a six-figure salary starting, six-figure salary. You mm-hmm. have a beautiful house. You have a wonderful wife. You have great kids. They go to great schools. You've got a fancy car, blah, blah, blah. But they actually come to the realization that there's still something missing. The next promotion, there's still something mm-hmm. missing. And what is missing is that hole inside of them that they're trying yes. to fill externally rather than, than dealing with on the internal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... I, I like that. I like that. Like you say, also that they just are never satisfied, and that speaks volume to us as human beings. We mm-hmm. we generally never satisfied. There's always something new that or something more that you want. Like I mentioned, um, mm-hmm. where it is that we get a new car, and a few weeks later, novelty wears off. Yeah. But this serves a purpose, also, like you mentioned there, um, in terms of a, it can be a driving force for us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because now, okay, we're no longer we're not stagnating or sitting mm-hmm. on our past successes. Okay, but now what happens in the sense is I would like to ask you a question. So what happens or what is the main difference between people who are high achievers, okay, who use this to actually serve them, to become more, to achieve more, and then the people on the lower end of the spectrum who who get stuck, who instead don't use it, who's paralyzed by this lack of belief. What do you think is the major difference? A lot of of it can be socioeconomic factors, playing to... Mm -hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like you need to go to the right schools, you need to have the right qualifications, you need mm-hmm. to do this, you need to do that in order to get a good job, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, so that's what they've known all their life, that rejection, that not fitting in. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and part of their coping mechanism is to say, well, what's the point? They just give yeah. up. And giving up in itself gives them um, a social a distance a distance from the pain of not being able to move anywhere mm-hmm. and 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 uh, by firstly it's it's the same for you know people born into privilege i mean i'm not saying that it's impossible for people mm-hmm. that are born in a very low socioeconomic status not to excel but it's mm-hmm. a lot more difficult yeah okay and what so I, I definitely agree with you. It's a lot more difficult, okay? Because obviously you have, you have further to go in a sense to, to catch mm-hmm. up to some, someone who didn't have to or mm-hmm. had access to the right schools mm-hmm. and the right role models and the right mm-hmm. resources, okay? Especially me. I come from, from what I would say the underdog, but this actually drives me even more. So mm-hmm. that because I have to fight to get here, mm-hmm. I, I can go way further than where, where I am right now. You understand? If you are enjoying this episode and would like some practical tips that you can use daily to thrive, then head over to coachedsuccess.com 
forward slash thrive and download our five daily tips to thrive. That is coachedsuccess.com forward slash thrive. Now let's get back to the episode. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, it used to scare me when I used to be in, um, when I used to be in the company of people who, who are ambitious or are successful. It used to scare me because I used to feel intimidated by them. Mm-hmm. But until I realized like, okay, many of them had to run, had to run, let's say, a, a hundred meter, okay? Mm-hmm. So I can't, so now we're both at the finish line, even if I came second, we're both at the finish line, but he had to run a hundred meter, whereas I had to run a, a marathon to get here. So I, oh, I take that perspective. So it's like the underdog mindset. So it gives me more, more power to keep fighting. So mm-hmm. yeah, I took away this intimidation that I used to feel. Um, yeah, so on that also, so you mentioned that obviously um, one of the key beliefs that people struggle with that you've noticed is um, obviously the lack of belief in themselves. Um, tell me how this, because obviously you mentioned also that we have our core, what you would call the core truths or the essence. Yeah. Tell me how, or give me an example of how this actually begins to manifest as a, as, as a, as a let's say, a lack of belief. Okay, so it goes back to when we're kids. All of it's mm-hmm. about all of it's about kids. Um, so let me give you an example. The current wisdom at the moment is: if you have a child that mm-hmm. is crying during the night, to let them get on with it. Okay, mm-hmm. you don't go and pick them up because the rationality or the thinking behind that is that if you go and pick them up, then they're likely to do more of it. But this mm-hmm. is a, a an experimental and learning stage for the child. What happens is, is if you don't pick them up, that child on a subconscious level will develop a core belief that I'm not worthy of being picked up. I'm not loved enough to be picked up. I'm not good enough to be picked up, right? If, on the other hand, you do get up and pick up that child when it's crying, it's going to realize that I am lovable. I am worthy of being picked up. I am good enough to be picked up right and that's part of its developmental stage when it Mm -hmm. is when it is when it is has downloaded that i am good enough it will move on to the next stage of its developmental processing Mm -hmm. right so that's that's how these core beliefs um uh, are installed and what happens is is the manifestation from these core beliefs so um if you imagine a child like me right my dad was brought up in Ireland by priests and nuns. He was 100% psychologically abused. He was 100% emotionally abused. Whether or not he was sexually abused, I suspect he was. But whether or not he was, he never discussed it. Right? So my dad's coping mechanism was that, for that was to shut down completely, to shut down his emotions because the pain was too much for him to experience. Yeah. So what he did, un- subconsciously, he trans that to me it's called intergenerational trauma right he's mm-hmm. he cannot be present with me and himself and his emotions i.e because um it's too painful for him to experience his emotions that's his core belief so he passes mm-hmm. that on to me so <laughs> so i develop the core belief that i am not worthy of emotional attention from my father i'm not good enough to be emotionally 
accepted by my father, blah, blah, blah. So that's where my core beliefs were installed. Okay. Uh, does that answer your question? It does. That's very and interesting, though. It's very, very simple. You know, um, it's like I love, I love this, especially working with addicts, is that um, marijuana isn't a gateway drug. Uh, mm -hmm. Cigarettes aren't gateway drugs. Coffee, beer, or whatever you want to call it. Trauma mm -hmm. is the gateway drug. People that yeah. have been emotionally abused, sexually, psychologically, um, absenteeism by the parents, not enough attention. And I'm not saying that these are bad parents, especially in the, the world today. Um, parents don't have the time. They're struggling to pay the bills. They're working all day. They get home, they're exhausted, and then they have to deal with the kids on top. So I'm not blaming the parents. Mm -hmm. It's the thing about, about what people are saying about, oh, millennials. When you think about what millennials are actually going through, how stressful it is for a parent now to actually be able to spend time with their kids to be to create a safe environment where they can express their emotions. So these kids, yes. because that is painful for them, will develop coping mechanism, gaming or um, TV or movies or Facebook or whatever. And these mm -hmm. platforms, these platforms will take the place of an absent parent because it's too difficult mm -hmm. to, 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 to bear. It's a survival mechanism for kids. Yes. Um, and I, I, I definitely, um, I like what you just mentioned there that you can't really blame the parents, especially because, you know, parents, what I, I, I do believe that most parents try the best ultimately mm -hmm. with what they know and what they have. That's fine. And, and what happens is sometimes they're not even aware of the actions or their beliefs and how it's impacting their kids. Sure. This is and, all in the subconscious. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so what, I, what I wanted to say, Carl, just let me, let me finish this. So I was talking about addiction is that. Trauma is the gateway. Mm -hmm. The reason that people come be become addicts, and this is what I'm saying about my introduction to myself. When I took to heroin, it was like that. It was virtually overnight. And why mm -hmm. was that? Because when I was five years old, my wife and I traced it back. I got hit by a car on a London street. Broke, broke, okay. broke my legs, um, broke my arm, broke my collarbone, fractured my skull. And what medication did they give me during my developmental years so firstly it was a traumatic experience number mm -hmm. one secondly pain medication in those days during the 60s was morphine okay yeah <laughs> and it's uh, and, and, and i've always wondered how did i take to it so quickly firstly mm -hmm. because it's what i already knew it it was already mm -hmm. part of me and secondly um it was it was trauma-based Mm -hmm. So it kind of felt safe in a sense for you. Yeah, I, I, I remember it. the words I used. Do you know what? Mm -hmm. This stuff feels like I'm coming home. And it still gives me goosebumps now when I talk about it. I, I remember that phrase explicitly. So, wow. Um, wow. And then, Paul, tell me a bit about how you managed, because obviously you said that um, you ended up at rehab in South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a bit about you overcoming this addiction, your addiction. Like, how, what? How, how did you manage to overcome it? Because yes, you're going to rehab, but that doesn't necessarily mean that after rehab that you will stay sober or clean. Mm -hmm. Okay. So how did you manage that? How, what shifted for you? Mm -hmm. Most residential rehabs, their success rate's about 11%. 11%. 11 people out of 100. <laughs> so so mm -hmm. what rehab did for me, first and foremost, it gave me a break. Okay. Okay. Then I reconnected because that's the problem. The opposite of addiction is not 
sobriety, the opposite of addiction is reconnection. That's why NA, NA works or um, AA works because they're surrounded by the people. They're connected to a community. Okay. Um, so I think it was looking for the answers on the inside that really worked for me. I became curious uh, as about other addicts, first and foremost, trying to help mm -hmm. them, what was going on with them. Um, and because I could identify on so many levels with so many different types of addicts, you know, sex addicts, gambling addicts, um, whatever type, um, I got curious. The first thing I needed to learn was I can't be judgmental in my curiosity. Mm -hmm. you know, oh, you're an addict, you're a shithead, you, you know, you're a waste of space, you're always doing this, blah, blah, blah. I had to get curious and compassionate with myself. That was the first step. You know, what's driving this? Why? Because addiction is just a manifestation of a mm -hmm. much deeper problem. It's, an, it's, not, it's, a, it's a means of soothing that emotional pain. And it really is that simple. We do not need another stitch of research to tell us why people become addicts. It's obvious. Mm -hmm. um, so I think turning the journey from the external to the internal and then working through what's a really great way is, is, is what we call triggers. So what is a trigger? A trigger is a very small component of a weapon. Okay, so mm -hmm. things happen and we react. So when you get curious about your reactions to certain triggers, that tells you a lot about yourself. And if you trace okay. it back, you can identify core beliefs. I say again, it's a belief, not a fact. Right? Mm -hmm. so, then, so then you can see what coping mechanism was installed to, um, to manage that core belief. And um, so it's, you take it back and then you bring it forward to the present. That's the mm -hmm. other thing is like, you know, addicts or people with psychological problems, they're either living in the past or they're living in the future. Yes. So it's very difficult mm -hmm. for them to get in touch with the body and the present. You know, anxiety, yes. I love this, anxiety can only live in the, in the future and mm -hmm. regret, guilt, shame lives in the past. So if we're present and we learn to be present with who and what we are and we're accepting and compassionate, then we can learn from that. It's a great opportunity. It's a part yeah. of ourselves that says to us, you know, when we get triggered, it's a part of ourselves presenting the same trigger over and over again because it loves us so much. It wants us to learn. Once we mm -hmm. learn from it, our trigger is no longer relevant in our life and that is how we grow. Okay. Awesome. Thanks for that <laughs> answer, Paul. As a last question, I just wanted to know. So you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, you have in your programs usually 12 weeks long because... Uh, that's the link that takes for the new neurons to connect, mm -hmm. new connections to, to be made. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to tell me a bit about like about habits? Um, because obviously we're speaking about addiction now and addiction is ultimately a habit if I'm correct. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, sorry? It's not a disease. Not a disease. There, yeah. are, measurable, <laughs> there are measurable changes in the brain that mm -hmm. do occur, but that's not because of the disease model. That's because of intense focus, repetition, um, desire, reward, and relief, pain management. Okay. And how, so if it, does, if it takes 12 weeks to form a new habit, do you think you could form a, a counter habit for, let's say, if you were using cocaine, instead of using cocaine, you could, let's say, um, let's say wake up in the mornings, go for a run, and do some meditation instead, Okay. Um, do you think something like this could happen if you should do it over 12 weeks? It could definitely, it could help you in the long term as well. 
It depends on the client. Mm -hmm. So everyone's different. There isn't um, a set time scale. Um, mm -hmm. People have different levels of trauma, small trauma, i.e. small T, big trauma. I. Mm -hmm. um, so it depends. Uh, again, the coping mechanism is the use of cocaine to mitigate a much deeper pain. Um, it depends. So like I can usually gauge it with a client. I would say that um, drastic change overnight doesn't work. Just think to, uh, back to anybody who um, has made some New Year's resolution. I'm going to mm -hmm. go to the gym three times a week. How long does that last? I'm going to stop drinking. How long does that last? So yes. when you make these changes, they must be small and manageable and incremental. So drastic changes aren't working. Okay. Um, okay. But, uh, and then, sorry, one more question. Re sure. With regards to, um, obviously, the self, like, I, I know the narrative is very important, okay? You know, when you, when you obviously help your clients, is or are your activities directed at the narrative? Is that the core component of your, your, your consultant so, and coaching so, as well? So, yeah, so what you're calling the internal narrative, negative mm -hmm. self-talk, is also a manifestation from core beliefs. So what's okay. happening is, is that when you suppress an emotion, um, because that's where our problems doesn't matter what the emotions is. The emotions are the only thing that are real. Thoughts, mm -hmm. if we can observe our thoughts and we can observe our emotions, um, specifically our thoughts, then they cannot be part of us. We can only observe something, mm -hmm. see something that is elsewhere, yes. right? So we can observe our thoughts. So first thing I teach people is that these thoughts are a manifestation of core beliefs, which have then become suppressed emotions. So what happens inside the brain when you suppress an emotion is that the brain tries to make sense of that, tries to make a story out of it. Mm -hmm. These repetitive negative thoughts are the brain's attempt to mitigate you or I suppressing that emotion. So what you will find is if you give the body yourself space to experience it, because that's where all our dysfunction comes from. It's too painful to experience. Just sit with mm -hmm. it. Breathe through it, breathe deeply through it, experience it, let it be, and it will pass. And you'll find that, um, that these negative, repetitive thoughts will slowly go away. What you said is also important about reframing. Is it true? On mm -hmm. what evidence do I base this, this thought? It, you know, so what, because our thoughts are perceptions, they're interpretations, they're not reality. And yes. all, of this is, all of this is related to the mental filters that we have in place. With mm -hmm. scientists, with scientists, if you can imagine a scientist, what do they do all day long? They're looking for flaws in their experiments. They're looking for flaws in the data. Mm -hmm. They're looking for flaws. What does a consultant mm -hmm. do all day? He's looking for flaws in the projects. He's looking for flaws in the feedback. He's looking... So they're totally focused on the negative all day. But the problem yeah. is, when do you switch that off? Mm -hmm. How do you switch that off? I, I love this thing. There's this, there's this guy who's a, who's a tax um, auditor, and he, um, he was scanning for problems all day long with, with people's figures. So okay. um, he was having problems with his wife, right? So he thought, and because he normally makes that uh, Excel spreadsheet about you know, uh, uh, inaccuracies in the figures, he thought, to help their marriage get back on track, he would write down and put in an Excel all the things that she'd done wrong over the past. 
But this is his yeah. thinking, right? I mean, yes. that's an extreme example of it. I mean, how do you think that worked out when he presented that with us? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, uh, so, so you also have to take into consideration, you know, one of the great tools, obviously, for overcoming this and the most powerful tool um, that we know of is gratitude. Mm -hmm. Is being grateful yeah. for small things. Yes. Um, which I do every night. I've got my three things that I'm grateful for today. I try to attach an emotional component to that because it makes it, mm -hmm. it supercharges it. It makes it more powerful. Um, interactions or like the beautiful day here in Malta and, you know, and, and, and the feeling that goes with that. And that will rewire the brain to start scanning for the positive as well as the yes. negative. I'm loving that. I love that. <laughs> um, Paul, I would just like to say thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat to, to, chat to me about, obviously, um, your life, your journey that you've been on, and then your current practice and the tools that you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're welcome, Carl. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. It's a shame you're in Thailand because as soon as this uh, lockdown at the airport lifts, I'm, I'm off yes. to South Africa for, for um, a diving uh, safari. Nice, nice. You must enjoy that. I'll Thank you for listening to this week's episode. This is a weekly podcast. So tune in every Monday to get your dose of inspiration that will help guide you in designing your version of an extraordinary life. This is Kyle Daniels, wishing you an amazing day. Stay winning.